Hello, everyone, and welcome to the audio version of the Good Time Show. I'm Sriram, and this is Arti. And since this is the first ever time we are doing this, let us tell you what's going to happen. You know, we kicked off the Good Time Show about a year ago, and since then, almost every single week, we've had guests from the world of entertainment, technology, creators, and pretty much anybody who's into building things. And this time, we started doing the show on YouTube and now as a audio podcast. And to kick things off, we had a very special guest talking to us today. We had Mark and Reeson and Steven Sanofsky joining us for this episode, and it was an incredible conversation. Mm-hmm. We covered many topics, including Mark's recent tweets around the current thing. Lots of tweets. Lots of tweets around that. We talked about his take on memes and meme culture. Uh, we talked about why Mark will not eat bugs. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of not eating and drinking things on this episode for some reason. That's right, and and you know I think for us this is a really good episode that just brings us back to why we love doing this show as such. This is a show about creators, about building things, about techno optimism, and you will see a lot more of that in this episode. Hope you enjoy, and we're going to have a new episode almost every single week. Enjoy. Live from San Francisco, it's the Good Time Show, and now your hosts, Artie and Sriram. Woo! <laughs> oh my gosh! We are back. We are back. We are live. <laughs> we have a lot more pixels. We have a lot more pixels. We are in two D or lots of dimensions coming to you over the interwebs. Yes, through the oh pipes. My, oh my gosh! I can't believe this is actually actually. Happening! Oh my goodness! Okay, <laughs> thank, thank you, thank, thank you, you everyone yeah. for listening in. Thank you everyone for listening in, streaming, joining us. What you know, whether it's late we're, at night or yeah, early. We're in the trying day. this whole setup for the folks on Clubhouse. Welcome! Thanks for tuning in and listening. That's where the show started. Today we're trying a new experiment. We are going to be on YouTube as well. So for the folks who are joining us on YouTube, thank you. Thanks for just being here and supporting us and just being here on day one of the reboot. Oh my gosh, yeah, this is a historic day and thank you so much for everybody who's been here. But okay, let's get the basics because a lot of you, this may be the first time you're seeing our great looking face, you know, <laughs> and so who are we? I'm Aarti and this is Sriram and you know, we, just a quick intro on us. We came from India about 15 years ago. We worked in technology for all these years for, we've known each other for what, a couple decades now mm-hmm. we're old and and you know i think for us we've worked at different tech companies we now live in san francisco we have two kids and we started this show late 2020 mm-hmm. and it's been a little over a year of us doing this show and it's just been so fun to just tell people stories talk about technology and all of that so what is the show about uh-huh. give us a background so at the heart of it you know arti and i are only here because of technology in fact we met over a chat app 20 years ago you know way before any dating app mm-hmm. and you know every single thing that we have done since then every single you know you know dollar we have made every single thing we have has been directly attributed to technology and this is our way of finding a way to give back so at the heart this show is going to be about being optimistic about people building creating anything they could be building a piece of software they could be building a rocket they 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 could be you know building a you know a watch whatever it is it doesn't matter we are here for people who want to build things so if you're in the business of tinkering building things 
We are, this is the show. You are our people. You are our people. There we go. Okay. <laughs> All right. Without With me- that, you know, today, just to kick things off, we have some incredible guests. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and you might have seen the tweets this morning. And we've been talking about it all day. We're just so excited to do this. We have a lot of caffeine in our systems. <laughs> I mean, look, it's 10 p.m. The kids are in bed. This is like kind of a big day. So who do we have here? Okay, we have two very special people. I mean, no strangers to those of you who have been listening to us for a while. First up, we have a very good friend that we have known for many, many years. You know, those of you, you know, who follow Tech Twitter may know him for his decades of experience at various leadership roles at Microsoft, you know, from running large parts of Office and Windows, writing really long blog posts that stress test every text editor ever ever made but you know uh, we are so privileged because he's amazing and warm so we'd love to welcome steven sanofsky steven welcome Woo-hoo. there you go and in case you didn't know steven does the voice oh, oh good good uh, <laughs> uh, uh, good d right there uh, interesting choice of mug and in case you didn't know steven does the voice for our theme song and has not been paid yet okay but all right Let's get to it. And I've been waiting to do this for a while. And, you know, for those of you who listen to the show, you should know I have a thing for WWE. So this might sound familiar. (sighs) (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, there is a buzz in the air tonight. (laughs) Coming to us live from Silicon Valley, US of A, weighing in at over 1 million Twitter followers. He invented the web browser. He invented tweet storming. And he is my boss. Ladies and gentlemen, the one, the only, Mark Andreessen. Mark, what is that in your hat? This, okay. this, this is a, a wee little pour of, of, of Lagavulin. Uh, I, I'm ready for YouTube. Mark, I, you know, I want to start with this question, which is like, not happy, but you know, markets are down. There's layoffs in the air. What are your thoughts on the current landscape, the macroeconomic landscape as such? So, you know, the current environment. So, you know, look, there, there's there's a lot that we could talk about, you know, the, and, I, and I should start by saying the, the last thing I want to do is, is give any forecast or give any, any investment advice. So, so, so nothing that we talk about tonight should be should be taken as either a prediction or, a, or, or, or any sort of any sort of advice. But maybe, maybe I can provide a little bit of context. So, I have sort of a three kind of layer model for how I think about basically what we all do, building new tech products, bringing, bringing them to market, building companies, funding the companies. And, and basically I think about it like as follows. So the, 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 base, the baseline thing is basically the technology improvement curve. And the, the technology improvement curve, it's, you know, it's not really a, a linear curve in that like, you know, it, it, it has these step functions, right? There are these kind of, you know, specific moment in time breakthroughs. You know, like the, you know, the Bitcoin white paper was a breakthrough and, and, you know, the iPhone was a breakthrough and, you know, the PC was a breakthrough. So there, there are these moments in which you get kind of these stuff functions. But, but basically the technology improvement curve is basically, uh, they call a monotonically increasing curve. Like th- basically the technology just keeps getting better. And, and the reason technology basically always keeps getting better in our world is because there are so many smart engineers that are working hard every day. They show up, they work on the, they work on the technology, they make it better. And, and, you know, the really good engineers, they show up when everybody's excited about what they're doing, but they also show up when people are not excited about what, the, what they're doing because it's, it's what they do. So they, they just, they, they show up and they, and they work and they, and they, and they make things better. So, so, so underneath everything we all do, right, there's, there's, there's sort of this, this, this technology improvement curve. Then there's this sort of sec- 
second curve that overlays on top of that, which is the social sort of adoption curve or sort of the societal change curve. And it's the curve basically of the group psychology of bringing new products to market of, you know, basically trying to build movements uh, around, uh, you know, around new technologies. And and that's a curve that has, you know, very, it has not that much to do with the actual technology. It has a lot to do with human dynamics. It has a lot to do with the psychology and sociology and political science of how people come together and decide to, you know, do, do things in groups. And the, you know, one of the interesting things about the tech industry is the technology curve and the social curve don't necessarily line up. You know, you, you can have technologies that start working, you know, kind of really early and then it takes a long time for people to discover them and, and realize they're a good idea. The fax machine was actually an example of that. The fax machine was originally invented in the 1870s and it wasn't really until the 1970s that people started using it. You can also have technologies, of course, that people get too excited about too quickly. And then you have the social curve, you know, pre precedes the technology curve. You know, we, we all got very excited about smartphones, you know, 15, 20 years before the iPhone and it just, you know, it, it wasn't time yet. And so, and, and then the, the, the social curve kind of rolls around like this. It kind of goes in these weird sine waves because it has to do basically with group formation. So, you know, people coming together in groups or herds and, and, and doing things as, as, as collectives. And that, that tends to happen in kind of these waves. And then the third sort of curve on top of that is the financial markets curve. And the financial markets curve is basically like continuous cardiac arrest, right? It's this, basically it's this like crazy up and down, you know, kind of thing. And, you know, the financial markets get super excited about something one day, they get super depressed about it the next day. You know, if, if you look at the technology curve, it's like, well, nothing really changed. If you look at the actual human curve, the social curve, it often turns out to be the case that not much has changed, but the market has either, the financial market's either gone euphoric or depressed, you know, for reasons that are kind of somewhat unfathomable. You know, to explain the financial curve, I think you want to go back to Ben Graham, who's sort of famously Warren Buffett's mentor and, you know, one of the great investors a hundred years ago. And uh, he wrote this book and he, he talked in the book, he said, he, he, he sort of describes the stock market as he says, as a character, as imagined as a person called Mr. Market. And Mr. Market suffers from a very bad case of, of manic depression and tends to get like extremely excited some days and extremely depressed the next day. And, you know, you can spend a lot of time if you want trying to understand why Mr. Market's excited or depressed. Or you can just basically say, look, he just like, he's going to have these wild mood swings. And, uh, you know, it's not my job to kind of track the mood swings. It's my job to actually, you know, build something that has value that Mr. Market will eventually figure out and will eventually come to understand. And so anyway, it's, it's like you've got this relatively smooth curve of technology, you've got this kind of wavy curve of social adoption, and then you've got this crazy curve of the financial markets. You know, I'm into this now, you know, I've been doing this for, you know, I'm coming up in 30 years of kind of participating in, in public companies and in, you know, the private financing markets and tech companies. I, I'm no closer to an explanation today than I was 30 years ago for like why the stock market does what it does. You know, why, why the stock market chooses the beginning of a pandemic to get super excited and the end of a pandemic to get really depressed. You know, <laughs> Mr. Market is manic depressive. He's off his meds and, and you know, we're, we're just going to have to kind of see, see how crazy he goes. So you lived through two really interesting eras, the 2001 crash and then in the 2008 global financial crisis. Did those feel similar? What felt similar? What felt different back then? Well, we don't really know what's happening. So part, part of what happens is like, while these events are unfolding, we don't really know what's happening, right? So we're, there's, we're at, you know, we're at your, I guess there's the big, uh, your, your, your Marvel, your Marvel, your favorite Marvel movies in theaters right now with the multiverse, right? So, so it's strange. So it's really good. People should go watch it. It's pretty fun. <laughs> That's what I hear. So there's, there's two, you know, there's, there's a fork, there's a fork in the road. There's a fork in the multiverse from here, right? And one fork in the multiverse basically is that this is like, a, you know, what we've been going through the last few weeks or last couple of months with the stock market 
in tech, it's just it's a temporary phenomenon. And if you remember, like at, at the very beginning of COVID, this happened, like the market collapsed heading into COVID and everybody thought it was the end of the world. Right. And people were like screaming on TV and like the whole thing. You know, there's one version of the world in which this is like a temporary phenomenon. And then basically there's like a, you know, at some point there's like a massive rebound. And then at some point it's just like, well, which is what happened in March, April of 2020. Right. The stock market that took off, you know, and, and again, like, why did it dip and then take off? I don't know. It does what it does. You know, if that happens again, we'll look back on this period that we're in right now and just say, wow, that was weird. But like, Everything just kept going. So that's, that's one fork in the road. The other fork in the road is that this is a serious downturn. Like this is, a, as you said, like a full on like 2000, 2008 downturn, or at least, you know, let's just say a bad recession, right? Like, you know, that, you know there have been, you know, many recessions and crashes, you know, even before 2000. Um, I, when I entered the industry, we were actually in the middle of one in the early 90s. I'm sure Stephen remembers that at the time felt pretty bad, but in retrospect, like faded relatively quickly. And so, you know, maybe this is like one of those periods. And if, if this is one of those periods, then, you know, then there are things that follow from that. And that will include a lot of layoffs and that will include, you know, a, a kind of a reset to a lot of our assumptions around kind of how these companies work and how they get financed. It's just like, we, we don't, I mean, you never know. We didn't know. I'll just give you by, by, by history. Like the NASDAQ crashed in March. It first cracked in March of 2000. If you look at the chart, you know, it sort of fell over the next year and a half, but there were like five big rallies as it fell. And so there was this like constant whiplash back and forth, you know, where it kind of felt like it was going to recover and then it fell again. And then there's actually a fork in the multiverse actually that happened in the fall of 2001, which was 9-11. Right. And there, there, at least some of us were starting to feel a little bit better in the fall of, of 2001, like we were going to we were going to come out of the, the downturn and then 9-11 happened. And that really caused, the, caused things to spiral. And of course, you know, the, the main tragedy of 9-11 was the tragedy of 9-11 and, 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 you know, and so, and the, the, you know, the human loss. But, you know, it, it had the effect of also, you know, of, of causing a big blow to the, a big additional blow to the economy and a big blow to, to confidence and, and, and really, I think, protracted that that downturn. And so, you know, look, had had that had to had, two, had the 2000 crash happen, but not 9-11. Would we remember that differently? You know, 2008 was a different one. 2008 felt like it was going to be the end of the world for tech. And it was really bad. Right. It was a really bad recession. It, a lot of people really suffered. I mean, it was really bad in the credit markets. It was really bad in the real estate market. But actually, it was actually it turned out weirdly to be fine for tech. And there were a lot of people at the time who said, you know, there were very famous people at the time who said, you know, this is the end of the world. This is 2000 all over again. And all these tech companies are going to shut down. And it's going to be awful. And it actually turned out for tech, it was actually okay. Like valuations dropped for a while, but, but, but that, you know, it's 2008, 2009. It was when the iPhone was hitting critical mass. It's when social networking was hitting critical mass. It's when broadband really hit critical mass. Right. You had you know, Web 2.0, like you had these sort of, you know, the cloud SaaS started to work right around that time, yep. you know, SaaS apps first and then, and then the cloud quickly followed. And so, you know, in retrospect, actually, that was a great time. And the tech companies yep. that had good products through that period actually did really well. So, you know, that was a case where it actually wasn't that bad. Yeah. Again, like there will be. A, so here's what I know. There will be a history of this time written. The history will make it sound like whatever happened was inevitable. The history will make it sound like whoever basically misforecast was an idiot. And right, and whoever <laughs> forecast correctly was a genius. I'm just here to tell yeah. you, none of that is true. Nobody knows. Nobody has any idea. And we're going to discover day by day as we go. You know, the, the, and then you know, maybe the, the other thing you might you might talk about is like, you know, okay, so then what advice? You know, what advice do you give companies or founders in environmental? Yeah. Like yeah, especially for founders. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, especially for yeah, founders. So yeah, sorry, by the way, for asking myself the question. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't resist. <laughs> no, Go for it. I mean, you, this is a full stack show for you. <laughs> I've already hijacked, well, also, already hijacked Mark, the show. Just, so, what, Mark, yeah. one thing is, what would you say to founders, too, who are listening? You know, you, you, you hear, you read these absolutely clear explanations. Well, the supply chain this, the chip shortage that, these banks are going to do. And it just sounds like this perfectly thought through model, you know, that, why isn't that going to be the case? Like, why? Did, how can you say that you don't know what's going to happen, 
But then these people get on TV like they're on CNBC in the morning with an absolute roadmap of what we're going through. Well, and, and the way that it happens, right, that's exactly right. But then the way that it happens is basically what, what you have, it's, it's like a coin flipping contest, right? What you have is like you have like a thousand people who go on CNBC during like a three month period. And like, you know, let's say eight of them get the future exactly right. They predict the future exactly right. They look like the eighth that predicted the future. Everybody, of course, forgets the other 992 that like didn't predict the future, right? But had the multiverse branched differently and an event <laughs> unfolded a little bit differently, right? You'd be lionizing another set of people, right? And so, so much of this, like so much of when people quote unquote predict things and get the prediction right, so much of it is just survivorship bias. You remember the people who got the prediction right. It's like being at the being at the roulette table. It's like, you know, somebody, some people bet on red, some people bet on black, it, it shows up black. The people who bet on black look like geniuses. Like the ball was going to do what it was going to do, right? The ball, you know, tilted two millimeters to the left and the right people, you know, the red people would have looked like geniuses. And so it just, it's really, it, it, yeah, I guess here's a, here's a way to put it. Like a lot of people could go on TV or on the internet or on Twitter or whatever, and they can make predictions about these things. Like how many people can actually validate a predictive track record, right? That's like any better than random. If you really want the humbling version of this, there's a great book. It's a great book in a related domain. It's the title. It's an academic book, but it's really good. And the guy's subsequently written other great books. So the author is Philip Tetlock, and he, he famously wrote a book on super forecasting. But his previous book, which is an academic book, is called Expert Political Judgment. And it, I think the subtitle is What Do We Know and How Do We Know It? Um, and, and that's actually the one I, li I like even better. And he goes through, he, he and his students, you know, he's a professor, like a, I think psychology professor. He and his students go through like 20 years of predictions by basically all the you know talking heads on political talk shows and you know writing you know columns in newspapers and all the predictions of like what's going to happen in you know Russia and Ukraine like all you know all the kinds of predictions you see every day in, in sort of foreign affairs. And basically, his result he chews through all the data and he basically says that ex foreign policy experts in a given domain have a have a marginally less than they have a marginally less than random chance of being right. So so on average they're on average they're slightly more wrong than they than than, than a coin flip. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> and so it's like, OK, like, what is the purpose of all those predictions? Of course, it's entertainment. I mean, it's, it's entertainment. It's, it's masquerading as expertise, but it's entertainment. You know, by the way, why are they slightly less? Why are they why are they slightly less right than random? Because they know too much. Like, we, we, like we're, they know too much. They have biases. Right. They have preconceptions, the preconception, they have scar tissue, the baggage wears them down. And then the tip off that he points out is, you, you know, you see one of these people on TV predicting or you see somebody in the newspaper predicting. And what you never see is the scoreboard of all the previous predictions, right? You never see the previous, you know, thousand predictions and what their batting average was. Yep. And of course, yep. if they had a good batting average, they would be promoting it everywhere, which means, of course, they don't. None of them do. Yep. Anyway, long-winded way of saying, like, don't predict. I don't try to predict. Yep. I've given up trying to predict. Advice to founders, basically contingency planning, right? So basically, it's a world of scenarios. It's not a world of a prediction. It's a world of scenarios. You know, there's a scenario where there's very, very fast recovery. There's a scenario where there's a slow recovery. There's a scenario where there's a slow crash, fast crash, whatever. Different scenarios. Yeah. You might as well just give those scenarios, you know, one over N a probability. Nassim Taleb yeah. talks about this in his, in, his, in his books, I think. It's like, you might as well just like pick three scenarios and figure each one has a 33% chance because that's like the best you're going to yeah. do when you're forecasting. And then basically have contingency plans, right? So, you know, for example, like probably right now you don't want to assume it's easy to raise money especially mm -hmm. if you have a high post money valuation in your last round. So now is probably a good time to buy time, right? Now is probably a good time to just, you know, at least not escalate the burn if, if you know, if not maybe reduce it some and, and basically buy time and have a contingency plan in case this really is a dark period. And, and then other, you know, and then other than that, like, you know, stay focused on the business and stay focused on the, the fundamentals. I love it. 
Okay. Okay. Switching gears just a bit, right? Uh, I love it. Like Mark taking a swing. This is great. Like <laughs> the show's going to get more interesting as we keep going. Uh, uh, there we go. I wanted to contrast that with Stephen. Stephen, you you know we were talking about this earlier. So for founders, that seems like great advice. For a big company going through this period, you know, going through a re-entrenchment. How would you think about that during this kind of period of uncertainty, macroeconomic landscape? How would you deal with that, or what advice do you have, basically? Well, certainly not advice. I'm with Mark on the advice and prediction, but it's super interesting because I think that one of the things that tends to happen now is the big companies look around and they they start getting in this retrenchment mode, and yeah. they they start thinking, okay, we've got to cut costs because we are, sales are uncertain. And yep. so then that means we're not going to we're going to really just double down on what we know works, yeah. which from a innovation perspective means doubling down on the products that already have product market fit that are already selling that are already done, versus yeah. trying anything new. And so you start to see the big companies basically coalesce around the previous generation of of execution. Because why would you take risk at the time when it, everything looks like it's falling apart? And yeah. and so that to me to toss it to Mark is where the startups and the founders really come in because it's like the ultimate opportunity, opportunity is to compete yeah. with a big company when they're only doing what they did five years ago. Oh, no, There's a tweet today from uh, Brian Chesky, uh, basically saying that in the 2008 era, like you know, one thing what was happening, I think to your point, Mark, was things like the mobile phone and the cloud were just starting to take off or around the corner. And I think his question was, is there like a platform shift that is happening now that we can't see? Well, my bet, you know, it's probably obvious is that I think it's going to be Web3, it's going to be crypto, which is going to be the platform bet, which happens right now. But I think it's an interesting point that, you know, there was something happening around the corner. 2008 was, you know, the early eras of social media, the kind of the middle era of Web2, and we couldn't see it at that time. And, you know, maybe Web3 or maybe something else is the thing which is going to happen in a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah, so our partner Chris Dixon has this model, you know, this, this sort of extrapolating from what you said. He has this model, he says basically any given technology sector at any given point in time is in one of two modes. He calls it, it's either, you're either in search mode or in your, what, you call, what he calls hill, hill climbing mode, right? And so you imagine, you know, somebody exploring uncertain terrain, you know, when they're in search mode, they're basically trying to find the next hill. Right. And that's that's the you know, in, the, in that metaphor, it's basically looking for the next platform like it's looking for, you know, it's looking for the iPhone in 2007 or it's looking for, you know, Web3 now or whatever that is. You're trying to find that thing. And then when you're in hill climbing mode, it's like, OK, the search is successful. You found a hill. Now you go climb the hill. And what you know what that means is you, you exploit. Right. You exploit that opportunity. Yeah. And then, you, you, know, you know, and then, you know, you, you build all the businesses and products on that. But fundamentally, what you're trying to do is get that new technology into everybody's hands. Right, you're, you're trying to get that to scale and, and build out to kind of the full market size. And at any given at any, any given point in time, the industry is in some combination of sort of search mode and hill climbing mode. When I actually came to the industry in 90, 91, 92, 93, Stephen will remember this, is I, I think at the time, I mean, the PC was working, but like, at least in Silicon Valley, it was very, very much in search mode, right? Because the PC was no longer really a startup opportunity because companies like Microsoft and Intel and Lotus were off to the races. You know, that, that opportunity had kind of come and gone for startups. And so startups were looking for the next new computer architecture. And a lot of people at that time thought it was going to be so-called pen computing or tablet computing. You know, and this is like, you know, this is like the, literally this was like, the, you know, the iPad 20 years too soon, you know, kind of thing. And, you know, they searched for it. They started a lot of companies to go after it. I think all the companies basically failed. And the reason was because they actually hadn't found a hill. Like it, it wasn't actually time for that, you know, for that technology. Mm -hmm. 
you know, and then basically when the internet materialized, the reason why the internet basically Silicon Valley just like flood, you know, basically flooded the zone on the internet on the internet overnight was it was like, oh my God, thank God we found a hill, right? We've we've like this, this finally we found a hill, we found a new platform, we found a new thing that we can do. And so, so basically, it's like the, the industry is in some combination of search mode and hill climbing mode. In the past, I would say there just weren't ever that many individual technology markets at any given point in time. Like there just weren't that many sectors where technology was actually working. And then, and then the markets were actually, you know, they were never that large, right? I mean, you know, the total number of PCs in the world in the early 90s, total number of internet users in the late 90s was still actually quite a small number. So it was like it was really necessary to get to the next hill to be able to have any growth at all in the industry. I do think things have changed somewhat. I think now we have some of these markets now that are just so big that I think the hill climbing might go for a lot longer. And so like, just as an example, SaaS applications, like we're probably still at the beginning of the hill climb on that one. You know, Web3 you know, is earlier in the process, but like if Web3 does what we think it's going to do, then that's going to be a, like a 25 year climb. You know, we even still, you know, mobile apps per se, you know, probably, you know, the, you know, the opportunity is harder there. You know, but even still, we meet lots of founders that have, you know, really clever ideas, you know, consumer internet ideas and, you know, mobile experience ideas of different kinds. And so I wouldn't, I, I would not write off the previous hills as maybe bluntly as some people would. And I'll, I'll just give an example of that for what, what Stephen was talking about. So, you know, so Netflix had this kind of, you know, Netflix had this bad quarter and their, you know, their stock has crashed actually quite dramatically. Yeah. And so now put yourself in the shoes of, of big companies in Hollywood, you know, big, big companies in Hollywood, like the big studios that, you know, they, you know, Netflix launched streaming in what, like 2000. It's like you have like HBO Max and Disney Plus and so forth. Like those things didn't really mm -hmm. launch until like a couple of years ago. Right. Yeah. And so you had this long period where they just like dismissed streaming outright. Then finally they were like, you know, all right, like apparently this Netflix thing is for real. Apparently we're going to have to do this. In the last two years, you know, they've really committed themselves to streaming. And of course, HBO famously did this thing where they, you know, they had uh, our, our friend, actually, Jason Kyler, who was running HBO uh, at the time, or the, you know, the, the Warner Brothers studio, said he's going to put all the first run movies right last year onto, onto streaming, even if it really alienates the filmmakers, because like streaming is that important, right? It was, it was that big of a deal. Yeah. Netflix, Netflix cracks, the stock cracks, like two days later, this is actually true, like three days ago, there's a big article in the Los Angeles Times, and it's all of it's quoting all the studio Hollywood studio people saying, "Oh, it's basically thank God we don't have to think about thank God we don't have to worry about streaming anymore, right?" Mm -hmm. And it's and it's like instantly it's like we can for example it's like we can go back to having TV commercials and we can go back to doing windowing, right? We can go back like we can go back. We saw Doctor Strange in the theater, and it was a great experience. Like you could say that you know we were at the local AMC theater. The theaters are back, right? The crowd, the opening Marvel Day thing. It, it, it was you know it's back in some way. They're back for that movie, right? Go back next week for the next movie and see how you know. Well, well this is the thing, gun. right? This is the I mean, thing. Top Gun. Top Gun is coming. That's true. Top Gun is coming. People will go see that. I'll go see that in the theater. But but no, look, th this is the big question. On Okay, so here's the big question. I, here's one of the things the stock market is trying to figure out right now, right? Which is like, during COVID, you had this massive share shift in so many categories, including media and entertainment, from sort of offline to online, right? You had this massive acceleration of grocery delivery, you had this massive acceleration of, you know, of, of, of streaming, right? All these things, online gaming, like all these things. Now there's, you know, now now there's like the opposite is happening, right? A lot of these companies are now reporting like much slower growth. You know, they had this huge surge in growth. Now they're reporting slower growth. Does that slower growth means that co all of the COVID online adoption was a temporary thing and now people are going to go back to the old way of doing things? Or is it basically just an averaging out where like demand got pulled forward? Now it looks like it's receding, but like next year it's going to turn out actually no. These things are all, you know, serious things. Like streaming is actually still really serious. It's still the model of the future. No, you're not going to go back to having TV commercials. No, you're not going to go back to doing content windowing. It's going to have to be streaming. And that, and that, you know, look, that's an open question. Uh, the stock market appears to be in a very bad mood on that topic right now. 
maybe, you know, look, maybe the critics are right. Maybe, you know, look, maybe the theaters come back, maybe the broadcast TV comes back and so forth, the streaming got overblown, whatever. Maybe not. Like, maybe the, it actually still is the future, you know, in which, in which case the stock market is obviously being too pessimistic right now. And so I think that's actually, you know, people talk about inflation and Russia and all that stuff, but I think actually this issue for the kinds of companies we deal with is, is at least as important as any other issue, which is like, you know, do you believe that these changes are actually happening? Okay. I'm going to switch gears just a bit. By far, the most you know, requested question was this, <laughs> right? So here's the story, right? So you, you know, let's get a play with you on this. You disappear, you know, off social media for several years. And, you know, like Batman, you know, like Christian Bale making up minutes back, you show up again at the beginning of this year, start tweeting, and you suddenly start tweeting about, I'm going to say it, the current thing okay <laughs> well let me say you tweeted quite a bit about the current thing like i you know for context what? i spent an hour today just scrolling back and just reading your tweets and i think i maybe made it to about 6th of april or something that's how prolific the tweets have been and a lot of it have to do with the current thing yep yep there's a lot of the current thing so i guess you know <laughs> maybe one good place to start is what led to you getting interested in the current thing? And then, what is, what the, current is the current thing? <laughs> well, I have a very important question I need to ask first, and I need an answer from all three of you. Very important. Ready? All right. Do you support the current thing? I believe YouTube's terms of service mandate that we support the current thing. <laughs> Actually, actually, that's both a good answer and a correct answer. If we, if we, if we, if we fail, yes, Stephen, yes, yes. If we fail, fail, nobody will see this. So this won't, this will never be seen. It will disappear into a timeline that nobody sees. It will be banned. We will be banned and then electrocuted remotely. Yes, that is the penalty for. If you disagree with the current thing, does it even matter that you disagreed on air? Yeah, it doesn't because yeah, nobody will ever see you again. So. <laughs> Okay, so the real answer. So, and I have, you know, this, at some point I'm going to tweet about this, but the, the, this is where I've kind of been headed with the whole thing. So, like a lot of people, I thought I knew how the world worked at one point, and then 2015 happened, and then 2016 happened, and then 2017 happened, and I realized I didn't understand how the world worked at all. And to the extent that I was ever able to predict anything, apparently I couldn't anymore, and all of these, like, you know, so my friend Denkat calls this, you know, the great weirding, right? Like, all of these, like, crazy things started happening. Um, and I was just like, well, you know, basically, uh, and I should ask, is this a family show? You know what? It's after 10 p.m. There are people on the stream who no. say they're going to take a drink every single time you mention the current thing. So I don't think so. Let's no, go for it's it. not. The kids are asleep. What, the kids are asleep. You Your kids mind? are down. Your kids are yes, down. I was just, I was just um, yeah, yeah, it's just like, shit, I don't understand what's happening. Like, I, I genuinely don't understand what's happening. And so... so, so I basically, you know, so my first thought was, okay, I don't, I, my mental model of the world's wrong. I, I, you know, I, I realized, you know, I need to go on a spirit walk. And then I realized, you know, I don't like spirits and I don't like walking. So I couldn't do that. So then I did what I do when I get confused, which is I started reading, you know, which is, of course, the most dangerous thing you can do, especially these days. You know, not all books prior to 2015 fully support the current thing. Let's just put it that way. And, you know, the older, the further you go back in time, let's just say the less they support the current thing. So, you know, this is very dangerous territory. But, I, you know, I just, I'm old fashioned. I, I, I still read books and I try not to judge them and set them on fire when I don't like them. So, so I started reading. And in particular, I, I tried to start reading back in history to find you know, sort of, you know, analogies. And then I started reading laterally, you know, across different domains. And, and, and really what I was trying to understand it actually is, is it's that it's the second of those three curves that I mentioned earlier. It's, 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 the, it's the social, it's the social, it's, I got really fascinated by 
why do groups of people basically behave the way that they do? And, you know, this is a like truism, you know, anybody's ever written or studied human nature, you know, one of the things that just pops right out is that individuals act one way, groups act a different way, right? Mm -hmm. Like you take an individual, they'll do one set of things in response to stimulus, you, you put them in a group, all of a sudden, you know, a group becomes a mob, you know, with the drop of a hat and things get weird. And, you know, people will do things in group settings that later on they're horrified by, and, you know, his, history is replete with, with this kind of thing, right? And, and by the way, like a lot of people say, you know, a lot of people want to say now that like crazy group behavior, crazy political movements or whatever, you know, today are all caused by the internet or caused by social media. And I'm like, well, that doesn't really make a lot of sense because if you've read any history, you know how crazy things were before the internet. You know, in the 20th century alone, you know, we had communism and Nazism, which were very large scale group, you know, sort of crazy activities that led to, you know, enormous chaos and, and, and carnage, you know, with no internet in sight, right? So apparently people have been like four minute groups of doing, you know, really weird things, you know, way before the internet. So it's like, okay, well, why, why do groups sort of act like the way they do? And, you know, there's obviously a lot of science here, but there's also a lot of history. And so I, I dug harder and harder into both the science and the history. The paper that I read that had the biggest impact on me, and maybe we can, maybe we can link to this in the show notes, but the, the, the thing that really helped me kind of decode this in my own head was, it's a paper by two legendary social sci scientists, Timur Karan, who's a professor at Duke, and Cass Sunstein, who I think is a professor at the University of Chicago, who, who have spent their lives basically studying, studying human behavior and, and, and sort of the politics of human behavior. And they wrote a paper with the sort of what seems to be like an abstract title. It's, it's called Availability Cascades and then Risk Regulation. I'll, I'll come back to that second part, but Availability Cascades. And so they, they basically went directly at this question, which is, why do people basically become focused in groups on things that maybe were not so easy to predict they would be focused on? And why, and why do people kind of take you by surprise in what, what they get focused on in groups? Um, and the term availability cascade, basically what the current thing is, is the current thing is an availability cascade. Like every time there's a new current thing, it's an availability cascade. What's the significance of the term availability cascade? This is what I learned. This is what like explained it to me. So availability cascade, two words, availability. So availability is, they, they get that word from a well-known bias, human psychology bias called availability bias. And availability bias is people tend to focus on the things that are right in front of them. Like people tend to focus on the thing that's just like clearly visible, right? And so why are people focused on, you know, thing, you know, thing X versus things Y and Z? A lot of the time it's availability bias. It's just the thing that happens, you know, to be in front of them. And we could, we could all name a, a lot of trivial examples of this. We could also name a lot of, you know, kind of, you know, larger scale examples of this. And then cascade is the second word. And cascade basically is the process in social sciences where they basically say, you know, where something goes from one person to two to four to eight to 16 to 32 and then so forth to thousands and then, and then millions. Of course, a lot of cascades never get all the way to millions. But when something is a group mass phenomenon that gets to millions, what you find is that it was the result of a cascade. So it started with a small number of people and then it sort of, it's like an avalanche, right? It's sort of mm -hmm. the idea kind of avalanches its way through society and then basically a large number yep. of people sign up for it. And so the combination is very compelling because it's availability cascade. So it's a cascade, but it's a cascade around a thing that happens to be in front of people. And that's the availability part. So why are people focused on X and not Y and Z in large numbers? Maybe it's because X is more important than Y and Z. More often, it's just because X is the thing that was already visible, right? X is the thing that was already in the newspaper. X is the thing that people were already talking about. And so therefore, that's how the cas cascade goes. They, they link this to this idea of risk regulation because what they point out is a lot of the time, the things that people are very focused on are not the things that statistically they should be focused on, right? So the classic yep. example of nuclear energy, people are very focused on the dangers of nuclear energy to the point where like most environmentalists like do not support nuclear energy at all. Right. And there's yep. sort of this theory that it's like this incredibly dangerous thing. In practice, it's far less dangerous than oil or gas, right? Or, a, or, or, or by the way, burning you know, wood inside a house, which is what a lot of people still do. 
Like, you, you, like nuclear energy is like by far the safest kind of energy, yet the availability cascade against nuclear energy is like super strong and has been for 50 years, and apparently there's no way to dislodge it. And so anyway, we can, we can come up with like a thousand examples of this, but the point being is like the availability cascades kind of take over society. Like when, when they run, they really run. And then are they the thing that is the thing that really people should be focused on or not? Maybe, maybe not. The mm -hmm. purpose of the availability cascade in part is to address the substance of what people think they're worried about. But when something becomes an availability cascade, it takes on a life of its own and it kind of runs regardless of the actual underlying substance. And, 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 and then this is where you get into the real group psychology. But let, let me pause there for a second. The point yeah. of the whole thing underneath the current thing. So, okay, I get that. Like, that was great. That was amazing. You know, by the way, I've been criticized on the show before for, you know, not pushing back on you hard enough. So let me try, right? You know, why is it that when you tweet about the current thing, a lot of people get really mad at you? <laughs> well, or so you notice what I do. Or take you literally. Or yes, there is that. Well, you, you realize what I do. This is what I figured out. And I, by the way, I didn't conceive the, the current thing meme. I would love to take credit for it. If you if you go to the most the, mo the most important website in the world in 2022 is knowyourmeme.com. And so if you go to knowyourmeme.com and search on current thing, you can find we, we should get full credit to the inventor of, of, of the meme. And you know, then this, the inventor of the meme was the it was the famous blank NPC character. And then uh, around the outside, it says, I support the yep. current thing. So yep. that he, he, she, it, or they get credit for it. I feel like we're skirting on dangerous YouTube territory in our first day on the show right here. <laughs> this might be yes, the first and the last This all may be against policy. But anyway, there's a, there's a left-wing version, there's a right-wing version. Well, the great thing is, look, it's it's a cipher, it's a blank, but, but everybody immediately thinks they know what you're talking about, right? And so it's very easy for people to kind of read into it, basically, that you're talking about a specific thing. And then, of course, yeah. if you if you make the observation, this is where it gets it gets touchy, if you make the observation, that people care about something because it's the current thing and, and they think they know what you're talking about, they get very offended that you're questioning the legitimacy of their belief, right? And the thing that they claim to care so much about. And, and to be clear, one of the things about an availability cascade, one of the things about the current thing is, it's not that there's no substance, right? There, there, there is substance. In fact, I, I think there may always be substance to whatever is the current thing, because if there wasn't substance, it wouldn't resonate, right? There, there's gotta be something in there that like grabs you and gets you to pay attention to it, right? There's gotta be some kernel, of, at, at least some kernel of something in there. But it's but but the point of the paper, the point of the Quran Sunstein paper is the fact that you're focused on this and not these other things that statistically are probably even more important, probably indicates that you're focused on the current thing primarily because you're part of a group, right? You are, you are acting as part of a group, you're acting as part of a mob right, as compared to making an independent judgment, right? You think you're making an independent right. judgment, right. you're not, you're acting a right. part of a group. And the, and the minute people start to act in a group, they're different, they behave differently, yeah. right? And we, we can talk more about that, but that, that's where things get really interesting. Yeah, I was having conversation with somebody the other day who was kind of bad at you about the current thing. And, you know, I was trying to point out to them that, A, the current thing kind of applies to sort of all sides of, you know, political, cultural debates, that's number one. And the second part is, I think you're trying to describe a theory and not the particular current, you know, topic that they think it's applying to, right? Which I think is kind of a subtle difference. But they still matter to you, Mark. So I couldn't help you there. So I'm sorry about that. But you know, the, the, you know, one of the long list of people you blocked on Twitter. But also, it's interesting that it's kind of like the the physics effect, like an observer effect, being played out here in real time, right? You point to the the thing that is happening. Once you observe it people get really offended that you know you're like this is a thing and that you're like making fun of them but really all that you're doing is like looking at this and saying here is what's happening do you not see it yeah and it's just fascinating to see the replies and back and forths on 
how can you talk about the current thing? Do you even know what we're supporting? How can you not support it? And it's just, you know, I've seen this play out over and over and over again. Yeah, I think at the heart of it, people don't want to be told that the thing that they're believing in, you know, is not because of their sort of their pure noble beliefs and it's actually something important. Okay, yeah. I want to move to something else that a lot of people are no, no, mad wait, at you wait, about. Let me, no, 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 wait, yeah. wait, wait. Before Defend I, I yourself. People even, I can make people even more mad at me on this topic before we move on. So I just want to, this is where it gets really interesting. This is where it gets relevant to, to building companies. This is where it gets relevant to building companies. Every group has its current things, right? So in politics, the left has its current things, the right has its current things, right? And we all know like there's a TV network you go to if you want to find out the left's current things. There's another TV network you go to if you want to find out the right's current things. It's very obvious, right? So every group has their, their current thing. By the way, every subgroup has their current thing, right? Every every company had there's a, there's a set of current things running inside the company, right? Every university there's a set of current things running. Any group context that you can come up with that has more than like three people in it is going to have this kind of thing happening, right? It's it's going to have this phenomenon where people stop thinking as individuals, they start acting as, as as part of a group. The reason why you always have that is because the function of the current thing is to define the group. This is what's so interesting, right? The function of the current thing is to define the group. The, where I got that from, John, Jonathan Haidt wrote, wrote the best book yep. on, on basically sort of group psychology that I've ever read. It's, it's this book called The Righteous Mind. And he talks, he doesn't use the term, he doesn't use the same terminology. He doesn't say current thing. He doesn't say availability cascades, but he's talking about the, the, the same thing. And he, 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 he comes at it from the standpoint of what he calls moral psychology. So the sort of study of what makes us care morally about things. And he says, look, the, the thing about these moral cascades, the thing about these things where people get very fired up about you know, an issue into which they impute like a great level of sort of moral importance, political importance, emotional importance. He said the function of those things, the social function of those things, he says, they bind and blind, right? And the bind part is they, they cohere the group. Bring it uh, another concept is like a shelling point. They, they act like a shelling point for the group. I certify that I am a member of the group because I care about the same things that the group cares about. In fact, I certify that I'm a particularly good member of the group because I care about the thing even more than all the other members of the group care about, right? And, th and this is this phenomenon where groups, a group will tend to polarize. A group on its own will tend to get more extreme. Cass Sunstein's actually done a whole separate set of work on this. A group on its own, he, he, they do these studies where they'll, they'll do a focus group. It's like a fake focus group to generate this effect. But they'll do a focus group on like gun rights and they'll get like a bunch of like gun supporters or gun opponents in a room, but, but it'll, it'll be all supporters or all opponents. And then they basically ask them questions, they get them talking for three hours. And basically what they find is the entire group gets more extreme by the end of the, by the end of the, by the end of the, by the end of the session, right? If you get, you know, just cause people get like very fired up and they want to prove that, that, that they're really, that they're really into this thing. And so the, these, the, the binding part, these things bind groups together and then blind, which is rational thought vanishes because rational thought is an impediment to the group identity. Right. And so the, the blind part is people become very unwilling to evaluate new empirical data on the thing that they believe that they care so much about precisely because that empirical data is a threat to the coherence of the group. And it's at this point that the individual behavior has has vanished and the group behavior now dominates. Right. Anyway, point being, remember, I described earlier the, the, the sort of social social curve of new, new technology. What are all entrepreneurs with a new technology product trying to do? They're trying to spark an, an availability cascade in the target market for enthusiasm and adoption and support of the thing, right? So they're trying to literally turn their product into the current thing, right? In, 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 the, mind, in, the, mind, in the mind of the market.
And when you see these products take off, it's, it's because they become the current thing in their market. And so it actually turns out that this whole kind of area of social science actually, I think, applies just as much in business as it does in, in, in sort of more general life. Okay, here's here. Uh, we're going to talk about memes. Let's go, let's go talk about memes, right? So, uh, you know, you have become or seem to be really, really good at memeing on Twitter. And by the way, I can vouch memeing on pretty much every other sort of communication channel I have with Mark. Right. I'm guessing why memes, oh, but let's start something. Do you, do you create your own memes? Do you have a meme dealer that you're kind of paying off on the side? I, somebody's actually asked me this, right? They're like, is Mark creating his own meme? So we were, for, we were just joking the other day that you're taking a break on Twitter because even meme dealers need to take a vacation and go on yeah. spring break. Um, so. Yeah. So for the record, and remember there is no misinformation on YouTube. Where do your memes come from? Well, they're, they're all either appropriately credited or they're all original. If, if they're original, they're, they are all lovingly, artisanally handcrafted by, for, for my audience. There is, no, there is no intermediate meme construction pipeline. So, so why memes? Why, why memes on Twitter? Like, why do you enjoy them? Why do you think they're powerful? Why memes? Yeah, so it's well. A lot of it's what we just talked. Like a meme is like a, a meme is like the atomic payload of current things, right? The meme is the atomic payload of a social cascade, right? It's you know, it's 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 a it's a it's it, right. It's a crystallized idea that can get injected right into a group environment and then it has the potential to cascade. You see this all the time. I mean, it's actually this is why I actually, I actually legitimately I really think this website's important. The knowyourmeme.com website that you guys are just showing, like it's legitimately important because. It actually shows the results of this incredible Darwinian evolutionary petri dish thing that's been playing out on the internet now for you know coming on thirty years. And it, well, here's another thing: like there are meme entrepreneurs. Like there are you know anybody who yeah. creates a meme is like this. There are meme entrepreneurs. You create a meme, you know it's like a, you know it's like your it's like your child. You, you know you want it's like your little you know your little digital child. You want to like set it out in the world. You want everybody to love it. You know every once in a while you you hit the group psychology just right. You spark the cascade. The meme runs, and then it, you know, and then it gets remixed, and lots of people use it. And then you know, 30 years later, there are people writing history books about it. It's it's you know, it's it's, it's all good. You know, most memes don't make it to that extent, but everybody who crafts a meme is kind of hoping, hoping that it will. And so it's this it's the same kind of cascading behavior. It's it's the payload for the same kind of cascading behavior that we've been talking about. And then you know, look, the other part is Richard Richard Dawkins. And again, this 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 gets you know, you kind of there's a silly version of this. There's a heavy version of this. You know, Richard Dawkins, you know, is credited with the original invention of of the word meme. He actually invented the word meme. I think actually back in the 1970s. And it's in his book called The Selfish Gene, right, which is about evolution. And he talks a lot about you know how the how the he, you know the thesis of his book, The Selfish Gene, is that basically genes want to reproduce. Right, and then genes basically program us to behave in certain ways that right optimize you know reproduction. It's kind of standard evolutionary theory. And then he basically said the last chapter of the book. He said he said genes are like biological sort of units, vectors of reproduction. Memes are the intellectual counterpart to that. They're 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 an intellectual unit of reproduction. And and like genes are selfish. Genes have a mind of their own. Right. Genes want things to happen in the world. Memes also want things to happen in the world. They also have a mind of their own. Right. And, and they basically what they do is they basically they colonize like they, they literally colonize human human minds. Right. And so and, and what he basically says is literally the way human evolution works is it's simultaneous biological evolution with genes and then intellectual evolution with memes. Right. And then and then and then they're all intertwined. Right. Because <laughs> there's a kicker. The memes can change the genes. Right. This is what's so crazy. Right. Two people who like the same meme might fall in love and get married and have kids where they wouldn't have if they didn't like the same meme. 
right? You guys, I mean, you guys, had, had you guys not had so many shared interests, you know, you brought, you wouldn't have the two kids that you have, right? Sure. Like that is quite literally what happened. And so mimetic evolution can drive I, genetic I, I, you evolution. You know, I sent her a very romantic meme, I'm very sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, the meme, so we have the crystallized version of the meme, which is like, the, you know, the image or whatever, that da 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 but, it, it, but that's, a, that's a class, that's like the internet and native format of this broader idea that basically ideas yeah. have a life of their own and ideas want to propagate and they want to replicate. And so anyway, like basically what the internet has done is the internet has made all of this legible. Like the internet's made this all explicit. Like th this was already happening. Like there were memes traveling up, you know, the written word, oral, you know, po poetry full of memes, Shakespeare's full of memes, right? Like we all know, you know, 80 references from Shakespeare that have taken on the form of memes. So th this has been happening for a long time. It's, it's, it's the internet, like so many other things, the internet turbocharges it, right? The internet adrenalizes yep. the process of, of, yeah. of meme creation and propagation. I love it. Okay. So one thing I might notice is, you know, I, I think people are like, hey, why is Mark doing X? And then, you know, you get like a 25 minute theory and historical discourse, right? So we're going to put you on the spot. And you know, so we're going to play a little game. And, you know, we went and found a few of your tweets. I mean, hold on, hold on, wait. I need to be ready okay. for this. Right? Okay. This is going to get spicy. Well. So hold on, one sec. Ah, you get some popcorn is that, in here. Is that popcorn? Is that what that is? Okay. That is yes. popcorn, right? It's going to get spicy. We have, some, we have a big production budget here, as you, if you can't tell. <laughs> as you know, popcorn is a meme. It's true. There you go. You're memeing right now, Shreon. Yes, yes. <laughs> How many has been going on for an hour? Okay, hold on, hold on. All right. Okay, You're a live meme. Okay. We're going to show you tweets, and these are your own tweets. And you know, and you just have to tell us what were you thinking, what's going on here. All right, let's explain Jeff, the tweet. Play, yeah, yeah. Let Jeff, let's bring up the first tweet here. All right, what's going on here? Oh, this is this is a good one. All right, let's see. I the graph I recognize. Let's see what. Let's see how I made people mad. Oh yeah, there we go. Student loans. Yeah, that'll do it. It, it turns out people are touchy about the student loan topic. I don't know if you guys knew that. <laughs> so, so hold on. I, I know this is your favorite graph of all time. Yeah, so this is a famous graph. I try, it's from it's from a it's from a, a think tank called AEI, um, and they, they post updates to it. But this this is so. What this is is this is twenty years of price curves by industry, right? So th this is li literally this is like the twenty year view of how much things cost. And yeah. basically, the, the short version of it is everything that is blue and at the bottom is stuff that's getting cheaper. And everything that's red at the top is stuff that's getting more expensive. And as you can see, like basically, there's it's pretty continuous. Like the things that get, you know, the things that get more expensive tend to keep getting more expensive. There's a couple couple details in there. There's a couple variations, but like you know, by and large, the curves are pretty straight. And, and basically, this is you know, this is the this is the tale of the two cities that makes up our modern economy, which is everything that is blue and on the bottom prices are falling. When prices fall, it's a consequence basically of technology. It's a it's a it's a consequence of productivity growth, which means these are industries. These are industries like media and retail and consumer electronics and television sets and software in which you have lots of new technology and as a consequence, prices fall. And by the way, people get really mad, right? Because they get really mad because industries that have lots of technology being introduced, lots of productivity growth, have lots of disruption, lots of churn, lots of job changes, companies going bankrupt, other companies rising up, people get really mad at the rate of change, and which is why they get people get stressed about automation and people, you know, maybe in some cases don't quite like the tech industry and so forth. The other side of it are all the curves in red. Those are all the prices that are up into the right. Those collectively group into three buckets, housing, education, and healthcare. It turns out housing, education, healthcare are pretty important. In fact, it turns mm -hmm. out that those are basically the three hallmarks of the American dream or of the sort of middle-class, you know, lifestyle. And, you know, you're kind of a success as an adult with a family if you've got like a nice house, if you've got a great education for your kids and great healthcare. 
But those are industries that technology basically doesn't affect very much. Those are industries that are dominated by labor costs. And mm -hmm. so there's huge, you know, explosion of jobs and, you know, labor compensation happening in those sectors. There's actually negative productivity growth happening in some of those sectors. And then the prices are going to the moon, right? And so we're, we're heading into a world in which a four-year college degree is going to cost a million dollars and a flat screen TV that covers your whole wall is going to cost a hundred dollars. And like, you might plausibly ask like, does that make sense or should it be the other way around? Anyway, for the red curves, people get mad because the prices keep going up, right? And then, and, then, and then therefore people demand government intervention in those markets. The government intervention basically takes the four, two, two forms. One is the government restricts supply in those markets yep. by preventing new universities from getting built or by you know, preventing new housing from getting built, which causes prices to rise. And then the government subsidizes demand through mortgage subsidies or student loans, right? Or health insurance, government health insurance and subsidizing demand also causes prices to rise. And so the, the, the government has wired those sectors for the prices to rise into perpetuity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and, and people get mad on that side too, so. Okay, all right, all right. Okay, hold on, yes. uh, I'm gonna begin. No. Okay, more for me. Okay, Let, let's, that was great. Wait, let's bring up the next one. I'll try to give a shorter answer this time. Yeah. All right. No, let's see. All right. Great. So this tweet is from. I you. feel the vibe shift. Yeah. yeah um, so vibe shift. What is a vibe shift? What What happened from like the summer of 2015? Why that time? What is this vibe shift now? You know, this is. How do I put this? It. You know, look. People have very different views on these things. Starting in 20. You know, I just I described earlier. It's like starting in 2015. I started to feel like I didn't understand what's happening in the world, right? And I'm and I'm I'm far from alone on that. I know I know I know that. And so it just it felt like there was a six or seven year run where basically things just kept getting. I don't even know how to put it. More superheated, more angry, more yeah. restrictive, more suppressive, more doctrinaire, more you know sort of I don't I don't know how to put it like pressure, just like constant onset of more pressure, right? And I, and I think a lot of people have felt this. I think a lot of people have felt this, you know, obviously through the, through the second half of the decade. And then, you know, of course, then COVID hit, right? And then, of course, that, you know, intensified things a great deal. And then, you know, a, a lot of other things yeah. have happened that people have gotten kind of very, very uh, kind of emotionally kind of invested in. And so it's just, it's been a very, I would say, you know, tense time. And, and again, I think this is kind of a universally true experience, at least to a large extent. So I don't know, it feels a little bit like things are, you know, maybe opening up a little bit. It feels like people are getting maybe a little bit more free and saying what they think. It sounds a little bit like maybe humor is starting to come back in fashion a little bit. It feels like maybe, you know, there are some, you know, shifts happening in the world that are, you know, pretty interesting. You know, there's some, th some things I, uh, I very specifically don't want to talk about, but, you know, some things have happened that are pretty, pretty exciting. You know, so, yeah, so I, it just it felt a little bit like the clouds are parting. You know, we'll, we'll, see, we'll see. We'll see whether that feeling lasts. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Next week. This is fun. This is great. <laughs> All right. All right so see. this is a tweet from Mark in April. It says, I will not live in the pod. I will not ride on the bus and pretend it's an airplane. And I will not eat the bugs on, on the fake On the fake airplane. Plane. <laughs> on, the, what on the fake plane. Is, what place is going on here? <laughs> so this is, a, this is a dangling reference. And so there's a reference here that's been lost, obviously. So we'd, we'd have to trace back. John, my, our friend Jonathan Blow, it, it's, he's referring to something that is, is, is we, we, don't, we don't have sufficiently nested tweets, apparently. So, you know, really, tweets should nest like five deep. I'm fixing that. <laughs> five, five deep, but I mean, that's, that's just me. Well, so I will not, <laughs> I will not live in the pod. So that, that's a meme. So I will not live in the pod as a meme, which I'm sure I haven't looked, but I'm sure there's a great entry on knowyourmeme.com. By the way, if their website doesn't fall over from the huge surge of demand that this show is generating, I'm going to be very oh, disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, have you, have you spoken it's, it's to the website creator, the founder, and offered them money? No. Like, no, I need to. Like, I, I'm, I'm a big fan. He's a genius. Whoever he, whoever he, you have only again, endorsed that they. website like four times in yeah. the last hour. So I love that website. That website, by the way, that itself is a meme, right? Because what happens is like, you, you somebody wants you to explain a meme, you send them the link to the site, and then they discover the site, and they're like, oh my god, and then they spend like three weeks on it, they read everything, and then they become. Well, a yeah, this is going to become a meme, right? Like Mark Essen loves knowyourmeme.com, and this is going to become a whole thing just in itself, yes. right here. But okay, all right, all so right, I'm right. I, so I'm sure there's an entry about I will not so it's, I will not live in the pod I will not live in the pod you know so this is the thing so I will not live in the pod right the reference is basically it goes back to that the the the, the price curve thing we we're just talking about you know you take these cities like San Francisco and you know many others New York and many others where like lots of people would like to move to and then you basically ban housing you ban the construction of new housing it turns it was like what is it San Francisco last year approved I think so it's seventy units of new housing for the entire city for the year. Right, like so, you just you outlaw the construction of new housing, and so so what you get is you get these people that basically start these pod hotels, right? Basically, this is a thing that happened in Japan and Tokyo like 30 years ago. I remember this when I was a kid. You'd have these pod hotels, and so like you could pay like a ton of money to get like a one bedroom hotel in Tokyo, or you could literally like pay a small amount of money and you could sleep in a pod, and it's literally like you know an air conditioned coffin. Like it's not people should not be living in air conditioned coffins. Like no, like I will not live in the pod. Like that's not. <laughs> this is not human <laughs> beings were not meant to live in pods, right? So, so there's that. It's, I will not live in the pod. I will not eat the bugs. You know, for some reason, the press is constantly getting us to eat the bugs. I saw my first. The World Economic Forum is obsessed with getting people to eat bugs. They had the first tweet the other day. Oh, yeah, here we go. That's so. Uh, there's Greta telling you I will not eat the fucking bugs, which is a yes. Uh, I don't. I don't know. I'm not sure if that's actually Greta saying that and pointing the gun, but if, if it is, I agree with her. So the World Economic Forum keeps going on and on about the bugs, and so they they just did their first tweet where they call you racist if you don't eat the bugs, right? Which was inevitably where this was going, right? And their logic is there are many cultures in which people eat bugs. And if you don't eat bugs, it must mean you're racist and you hate those other cultures. And I'm just like, no, I will not eat the bugs. You know, there's all these photos. You can go online and see all these photos. Of, you can see these photos of Stevens, you know, former employer, you know, Mr. Gates, like, you know, eating all these bugs and all the TED Talks. Like, I'm not, I'm not doing it. I'm not, by the way, I'm also not drinking the urine. I'm not, okay, I'm not drinking the poop water. I don't care how clean the recycled poop water is from the special okay. toilet. I'm not drinking the poop water. I just want to put that on the record. Okay, let's, sorry, go ahead. Let's, let's all take a beat here. Let's all, all right. Sure, it's a legit perspective. Not drinking the poop water, like it's completely legit. Put up, put up, sorry, we have to see this. People have to see, I, I, we need to see. We need to see. We need to see somebody do pull up the image of Bill Gates. Yeah, do not bring up we images of any of the things that Mark is talking about right now. Like, <laughs> no, not, no. Not, don't right. Google it. No, no, no. Don't look it no, up. Just Google no, no, no. Bill Gates poop water, and you'll you'll see you'll see what I'm. Yes, exactly. It's a meme. It fits right it's in. It's a meme. It is a meme. It is a meme. All right. All right. I will not eat the poop the water. Actually, and there was the something. Weird internet things that you know never ceases <laughs> to astound me. Right? Like it's just like. You you have you know there is no way you should be knowing these things. I have no idea how we do it, but you know, okay, all right. There's one last tweet that we're gonna have you answer. Well, let's bring up the final one. Hopefully, there's no poop or urine in here. <laughs> there we go. Okay, so this is actually a fun one. You asked for a Twitter Q and A, oh. and the, uh, the question was, if you lost all of your money and connections, had to build a company today, what would you build? And you reply, I would build a new Web three crypto network details TPD. And I think it's kind of more about. Web3 and crypto and what it brings in, which is a topic close to my heart, but why? Yeah, yeah, so this, no and this, is, a, this is 
this is a serious one. There, there, no, no poop water will be uh, will be uh, will be involved here. So, so look, the, the, I just you know people are excited about different things for different reasons. The reason I get so fired up about Web three and about crypto generally is because it, it brings together basically the two sides of my career in in technology in in a, in a really interesting new way. So the two sides of my career was like the first part of my career was sort of the old internet world of of open protocols, right? So the old internet world of TCP/IP and HTTP, which was the protocol for the web, and SMTP, and by the way, NNTP, which was Usenet, which was like social networking, and you know, way way back when, you know, and so forth. And then you know, at at at, at both, you know, my at, at Illinois, where I worked on the Mosaic browser, and then at Netscape, we actually were we were in the business. We were literally like building protocols. And so like at Netscape, we we built SSL, you know, which which became you know, it became very you know very very widely used today. And so like the, the internet got built with protocols, and what what that means basically is you know basically essentially computer languages effectively that let lots of people build software that all works together and collectively forms the internet or the web or email or you know these you know kind of these you know these these kind of amazing things that have been built in that model so that was like the first part of my career the problem with that world was there was no money in it and that that's a two part observation one is it was just hard to you, you could make a living in it, but it, you couldn't really. It was hard to have just have a company at the time that was like a protocol because you couldn't really monetize a protocol. And then also, there wasn't any money in it. Means protocols, there was no way to have money as part of a protocol. There was no way to have economic incentives be part of a protocol, right? So, for for example, this is what led to email spam, right? Is that like because it's it's free to send an email, therefore email spam. If it cost a fraction of a penny to send email, you would instantly kill email spam. You would kill the economics of spam. And users would be fine, and so we we always had lots of ideas for how we could sort of add economic incentives to protocols. We never had a way to do it. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, that's the first half. Second half of my career was building proprietary software, right? So building software companies that you know built software, sold software, licensed software, say you know on you know sort of packaged software all the way to SaaS software, whatever. You know, in the software world, it's great because you you know you build an app that people like and they use it and whatever. But like it's it's an app. It's you know the term walled garden gets used a lot. It's it's a walled garden. You know, it's it's as big and important as it can get, but it doesn't. It's very rare that you ever have like a proprietary app that basically in the long run will be as important as TCP/IP or as important yep. as HTTP or as important as SSL and really has these kind of you know industry redefining characteristics. And so for me, when I look at Web3, what I see is basically those worlds coming together, right? I see basically the ability to build a protocol, the ability to build a network, but the ability now because of the new technologies of blockchain and crypto, right? The, the, the distributed consensus tokenization, the ability to build a protocol that, that, can, that contains a token, that contains direct monetization, direct economics incentives built into the protocol, right? Which, which basically means you can build a protocol, but, but you can have money in it. You, you, can, you can actually build a business on it, and you can actually have economic incentives wired into the protocol. And so that, and you know, Bitcoin was the first example of this. There are now a thousand more. You know, many of the smartest people in the industry are now working in this space trying to figure this out. Obviously, this is an area we have, we have a big push in. But for me, it's it's that magical combination of the best of being able to build a protocol with the best of being able to build, you know, basically a, a software product. And for the first time, we can we can kind of unify these sort of two sides of the industry and bring them together. And so yeah. that, 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 yeah, so I, I would have straight for that. And I think, Mark, you also talked in a different tweet about how the unlock there is also the permissionless nature. And it's something right. that, you know, I really like to where it's like for the first time ever or maybe, you know, from, from like what I remember from like building software and stuff, like you talked about wall gardens and the term being used a lot. But now with crypto and Web3, you have protocols, you have ability to build products and software on top of it. But without the middlemen and the barriers and the permissionless nature of it, which I think is like really exciting. 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So and, and this is something that's gotten, of course, very dramatic in today's world, because, you know, even in the old days when like, you know, Stephen's former company, Microsoft, like even in the old days when Microsoft like had, you know, whatever their operating system, you know, position or they, they have it today, you know, in the old days, they, they didn't they didn't dictate what apps you could build and not build. Right. You just built the app. You sold the app like whatever you did it. There's something about internet connected operating systems, internet connected app stores, internet connected, you know, social networks, consumer internet services, YouTube, internet connected video services, where the companies, they, they ha- because it's all connected, they have the power to control what happens. They have the power to, you know, green light or red light, anything they want, or, you, you know, YouTube. YouTube has the power to either approve this stream or, 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 or disallow it. If they disallow it, like we're done, like there, there's no appeal, like it's over. Right. And so, and, you know, it, there's, you know, this is all, there's all this, you know, contrary, because they say content moderate, you know, it's wonderfully Orwellian terms, content moderation, you know, community standards, <laughs> trust and safety, right. That, you know, all end up kind of meaning, they all end up kind of meaning the opposite of, you know, trust and safety ends up being like mistrust and, and no safety. Right. So they all end up in this like really Orwellian kind of situation, but, but these companies end up in this control situation. And then these companies basically, they can exert control, so they feel like they should, and then they receive an enormous amount of pressure from outside constituencies, you know, demanding, you know, that, 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 they, that they exercise more and more control. And so they're, they're both an agent of control and sort of a, a, a victim of pressure to control, and they, they become choke points. And it's the exact, op- to your point, Arthur, it's the exact opposite philosophy of how the internet got built. The internet got built on this idea of permissionless innovation. Anybody can connect to the internet. Anybody can build a website on the internet. You don't need to go to any office. You don't need to go meet with anybody. You don't need to submit your credit. You don't need to authorize. You don't need to whatever, whatever, whatever. And, and by the way, this is still true today. Like one of, like at least, at least you can still like put up a website. Like anybody can put up a website. It can do whatever you want, right? Now, you need to find a hosting provider. You know, there's a few details to that. You might not be able to get a domain name. There's a few details to that. But at least you can still put up a website. And, and to your point, the the Web three world is a is a it, it, because it's a world of protocols, it is a world that tilts much more towards permissionless innovation. And then I think, therefore, right. it's going to be an area where there's, there's, going to, there's going to be able to be a lot more creativity than there is right now on the sort of tra- traditional Internet. And I, and I think that's a shame, but I, but I also think it's a big opportunity. I think, okay. don't you think, too, that people read a lot or too much into, you know, permissionless? Because they, they, it sort of pegs them into this anarchy kind of view, which ironically was like sort of the MIT software era of, you know, 30 years ago. But it, it is, you know, as much as I love the stability and reliability and all that that come from the app stores, you need this platform that literally rethinks any of those rules because everything that followed on the Internet came because there were no rules like you this this notion that you didn't have to abide by that particular layering or these particular api calls or anything and that's what the part i think people they they just read so much when they don't want to be then when they want to be against this they read yeah. so much into the word permissionless that they forget how you innovate and you innovate by literally not following the same set of protocols and rules and inventing new ones right mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And then look, like, you know, you know, like philosophers, I don't forget the exact terms, you know, philosophers talk about, you know, different, def, you know, permissionless means different things to different people. Freedom, right, as a, as a term, as a concept means different things. I forget the terms, but like, there's one form of freedom, which is I am free to do something. There's another form of freedom in which you are free to not have me do that thing to you. 
right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like what po- they may call it. I can't remember. Off the, it might be like positive freedoms, negative freedoms, that kind of thing. Like I, you know, I am free to walk down whatever street I want. Yeah, but it, you are it, free to not get it's used with rights. Yeah, exactly. Right. You have. The, yeah, yeah. I have the right. I have the right to walk down whatever street I want. You have the right to not get killed by me, which means I don't have the right to kill you. Right. So. Right. So. So yeah, so there's this asymmetry, and then of course, why are no here? It's so dark. Yes, dump popcorn on your head. We can, we can, we can force you to drink poop water. I cannot force you to drink poop water. I can guilt you into it, but I can't force you to do it. So, so yeah, so and then, and then of course, like wh- what I've learned, and maybe this is obvious to everybody now, but the existence of this is like one of those things that are like myth and legend or something, or like out of out of the, out of out of uh, Sri Ram's movies, comic book movies. The existence of the power makes people want to use the power. Right, like if, if 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 there's no way to bottleneck something, people don't really try to bottleneck it because there's no point. If there's a way to bottleneck it, if there's a way to seize control and basically have leverage over what gets written, what gets said, what apps get built, what people do, there are people who will show up who will try to exercise that control. And so I, I you know, look, whenever in the in the current world, whenever there's a company out there, an internet company or whatever, and they're they're letting something happen you don't like, or they're not letting something happen that you don't like, or whatever it is. Like everybody's got an opinion on what that company should do and blah, blah, blah. The other universe to live in is a universe, Stephen, to your point, is a universe in which like people can do what they want and, the, and, the, and the choke point doesn't exist. And, right. and then all of a sudden it's like the pressure to control vanishes because there's no actual way to control, right? And, right. and your, to your point, like this is how the software industry got built. This is yeah. how the computer industry got built. This is how the telecommunications industry got built. This is how you know, the printing press happened, right? This is how, you know, this is how people get to say what they want in the town square. This is the origin of the First Amendment. This is also how the internet got built. People, you know, mm-hmm. people can, 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 do what, can, can do what they like. And at least at the level of, I don't know, I, I, you know, look, I believe a lot of things. One of the things I believe quite strongly is if somebody wants to build an app, they should be able to build an app, right? Like, I, I, you know, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I don't think I don't think there should be the level of dictatorial control in this world to decide what kind of software people should build. And, and, and anyway, the point is, you need an architecture, right? It's not enough to have that opinion. It's not enough to have that policy. You need an architecture that makes that possible and doesn't make these these choke points as okay. as as easy to exploit as they are right now. Okay. All right. I'm going to sort of like you know a couple of questions which I think a lot of people listening have kind of sent to me. You know, a lot of people kind of listening now and in the future are going to be either founders or aspiring founders, and you know they're going to want to like meet with you or you know you know kind of another top tier venture capitalist. And I guess the question which comes up often is when you meet a founder in any setting, could be a pitch, could be any conversation, what are you looking for? Yeah, so the big thing we're looking for is, I'll use a term, the term is the idea maze. Um, so and this is a term from our, our, our partner, Balaji Srinivasan, so that I give him credit for this. He, he, are, he articulated and described this conceptually in the, the way that we use it now. He said sort of put into, put into a real definition kind of what we were kind of, gra- what we were all kind of grasping for and trying to understand. So, it, so it's the term he uses, he calls the idea maze. And so basically the idea maze, so what is the idea maze? The idea maze is the process of going from having an idea, you know, I want to build a product that does X. And then basically it's the five or 10 years of thinking and processing and scenario planning and doing, you know, user research and, you know, kind of thinking your way through the twists and turns of every aspect of, of sort of how that, how that will play out over time. Right. So, mm-hmm. the, you know, the idea maze is like, OK, you know, what if we, you know, name, use lots of examples, but like, you know, what, what, you know, what, yeah, like what if we brought the iPhone to market? What would people use it for? OK, then how would people build apps? How would those apps, you know, happen? You know, what what apps would make sense? You know, what old desktop apps would make sense to transfer over? What, which ones wouldn't? What new apps would emerge? What APIs do we want? Do we have to provide? 
you know, what's the relationship we have to have with the carrier? You know, how much bandwidth do we need to have? What are the price points, right? So it's, 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 the, it's the thousand questions that follow just having the product idea. And the idea maze basically is the process of working your way through those, those thousand questions, all the different twists and turns of how this is gonna unfold the market. And, and the reason this is important is because what you find is the great entrepreneurs are really good at going through the idea maze. The, the, the great entrepreneurs mm -hmm. are really good at navigating through like those thousand questions. And they're really good at like really understanding in detail all the twists and turns that their idea is going to take. They're really good at anticipating all the problems that they're going to have in the market, all the sort of key bottlenecks, the things they're going to have to unlock, how they're going to convince people things are a good idea, what they're going to charge. They, like they're really good at working through all those ideas. And they, they work through that kind of like it's a maze. And, and look, they're not right all the time. Like they hit, it's like a maze. They hit points where they can't get any further and then they have to backtrack, right? And they have to reconfigure mm -hmm. their product and idea and they have to adapt, right? And so that, that's why the maze metaphor is the right one. But then they do work their way all through, and then they have a good chance to get out the other side of the maze and have a big success. The, the great founders, basically, the really, really good founders have worked their way through the maze even before they start the company, right? Mm -hmm. so, so what you find is they have often spent five or 10 years prior to the time they meet with us, and they have actually navigated their way all the way through the maze. And maybe, right, and maybe that's because they worked at a previous company that tried and failed at something, and now they think they understand why it tried and failed, and now they know how to do it right. Maybe it's because it was their hobby for a long time and now they've decided to make it their profession. You know, maybe it's something that they've actually been prototyping in their spare time. Maybe they already have the product working at the time they come in to see us, which is, you know, what's the best, what's the best illustration you've made your way through the idea maze? The product is already working by the time you come see us. Like that, 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 that you know, by the time the Google guys raise money, the Google search engine is up and running. They had already proven their way through the maze, right? And so, so anyway, so the, the best founders, they've, they've gone through that process. They've put the burden on themselves to think through all the twists and turns. And then what happens is in the meeting, basically what happens is we can ask increasingly detailed questions mm -hmm. about all of the specifics of what they're thinking about, and they will have increasingly detailed answers, right? Whereas yep. the founders that haven't been through the idea maze, they fuzz out, right? They, they yeah. haven't thought it through and, and they fuzz out. And, and, and basically th this is sort of the cheat code. Like the, the ones that have been through the idea maze already, like they've got a really good shot. The ones that have, are at the very beginning, you know, the, 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 the archetype of I have a brand new idea, I have a clean sheet of paper, I got money against it and I'm gonna start the idea maze on day one. Of course, what it means is we're gonna pay for the trip through the idea maze, right? Mm -hmm. And like, they may or may not make it through by the time they run out of money. And so those are just much more dangerous. Yeah, you know, I think so having, having done this for like, you know, the last year or so, it's amazing how very quickly apparent it is when somebody's kind of done the idea maze or not, because they kind of explain to you, even sometimes without you asking, all the different things they've tried. Right? They'd be like, well, we did X because Y didn't really work. And we could have probably done Z, but you know, it's probably not a good idea in this context. And it doesn't really matter what the right answer is. You just know that they're kind of spend, spending like years just thinking about it and tried everything and run into all the, the dead ends. So, and it almost kind of shines through very, very quickly. It's almost undeniable. All right. Okay. I'll give, so, you, an I'll give you an example. Uh, let me give it, sorry, let me give an example. So our partner, Martin Casado. So our partner, Martin. So we, you know, we, one of our first wins as a, as a venture firm was, was he's now our partner, but Martin Casado, has started a company called Nasira that we back that, that VMware bought and it's it's now a really big and important you know product in, in networking software-defined networking and 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 it, he pitched this idea at us we're like wow that sounds intriguing we went and talked to all the experts we knew in the networking industry and they basically all told us it's a stupid idea it'll never work and so we went back to Martin and we said well all the experts say it's a stupid idea and it'll never work and he said well that's because they he basically said that's why they haven't gone through the idea maze like they don't actually understand what I'm doing. And, and we said, well, how do you know? Why are you so confident? He said, well, I've spent the last five years of my life doing this at Stanford, right? And, and that took the form of inventing the concept of software-defined networking. It took the form of actually defining a protocol called OpenFlow, and then it actually took the form of an implementation that was actually already running. And so he, he had spent five years actually proving out the entire thesis for Nasira. 
but before we even met him and we're like, oh, that sounds great. And so, and then of course, then we said the next thing, which is like, oh, that's great. You're going to take the software you built at Stanford. You're going to put it in a box and that's what you're going to sell. Right. And he's like, oh no, I'm going to throw that all away. Like that software is shit. Like I don't want that software, but he's like, now I know how to do it right. Right. So by the time Nasir came to market, he had not only been through the idea maze the first time at Stanford, he actually was, he actually shipped version two. Right. And so by the mm -hmm. time the existing networking companies figured out what was going on, it was too late. And, and the Nasira software is now the industry standard software for this. But it, but it was but that was the cheat code. Right. Is it, he, he had already actually done all this before he raised money. This goes to, by the way, to my to my favorite startup advice of all time, which everybody always founders, I think always some founders love a lot of founders. Hey, like the best startup advice of all time is Steve Martin's advice to aspiring comedians in his book, Born Standing Up. And, and the advice, Steve Martin's advice to aspiring comedians is it's a it's a one line piece of advice. He says, be so good they can't ignore you, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. Yep. So, like, yeah. that's basically what the idea maze is. Like, be so good at working through these ideas and prototyping and learning and knowing and figuring out the right thing so, that it's just, I guess, by the time uh, you meet with us, it's just obvious. Mark, I'm trying to break down, when you say the idea maze, I'm trying to look at like the attributes you're looking for, right? And to me, from just like what you talked about through the going through the idea maze, it looks like attention to detail. It looks like, persistence, just not giving up and just finding your way through problems in really interesting ways. And it looks like, you know, curiosity. Does that sound about right from like just attributes for founders that you're looking at? Like when you frame it as the idea maze, as a founder, I look at it and say, what are the things or the attributes that you look for, which, you know, you would see in like successful founders? So quite, I, I agree with what you said. Let's go through them. So like I would say underneath that there's an intelligence test. And this is another thing people really right. don't like to think about and talk about, right. but like the idea mazes are complicated. Like the, the process of bringing a new idea to market and having it succeed is a complicated thing. It's much, much more complicated than it looks on the outside. Especially these days, you have all these incredibly well-designed products that are like super simple and only like have one button. And, and right. like inside they're just like incredibly complicated. And so there's yeah. there's just a huge amount of detail. So, you, you know, there, there is like a baseline level of intelligence and going through the idea maze is a good test of that. Because if you don't really like processing large amounts of information and, and, and maybe this is your attention to detail point, if you really don't like getting in the details and tracking the thousand different questions, like you really are not going to like the rest of the job. So like that, that, that is, mm -hmm. that is important to know. And look, you do need to be able to get through the maze. Like you do need to be able to solve all the problems, right? Which again is like a sort of a big intelligence test. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's that. And that, that I think dovetails with attention to detail. Yeah. And then look, curiosity, like, yeah, I'm, I am curiosity. And then it's, it's some weird combination of ego and egoless. Like I have the ego to think I can build something new, but I also have the humility to actually learn from the process and like correct my mistakes. Right, because you you do meet people who are who get like too dug in, like they get trapped in the maze and they can't work their way out. Actually, a lot of early innovators and in a lot of markets are like that. Like they actually have the right idea, they actually even have yeah. the initial prototype product, but they get stuck in some part of the maze that they can't work their way out from. I mean, famously, and for Stephen's old, old employer, this is famously, um, you know, the the early competitor to MS DOS was was a company called Digital Research, and they they got stuck at a point in the idea maze, and then Microsoft made their way through it. So so it's like yeah, so it's like the arrogance to think you can build a new product, but the egolessness to kind of learn as you go, and then yeah, look determination, like stubbornness, you know, sort of the personality trait of conscientiousness, with what they call industriousness, and then just like sheer fucking stubbornness, you know, courage, you know, not taking no for an answer, like beating, you know, being willing to beat your I, my favorite cartoon as a kid was always, it was the cartoon in which, you know, whatever, Bugs Bunny would be running or whatever, and there'd be the brick wall up ahead. And instead of just like slowing down, he would just run right through the brick wall. And then, and then there would be an outline of the brick wall, like in the shape of Bugs Bunny. Yep. Right. Yep. And like, those are, that's always my favorite. Yep. 
those are my favorite. Those are my favorite cartoons. Those are my favorite kind of people where they just they don't stop. Like they just keep going. Yeah. It's it's this whole thing in the in the industry of like fail fast. It's like I like the other kind. I like the kind. That I like some people like people who fail fast. I like the people who don't fail. I, call me old fashioned. <laughs> I like the people who succeed. I'm in favor of success. And part of that is being willing to beat your way through the you know through through the obstacles. I mean, sometimes you have to crash your way through the wall of the maze, right? You have to do things the hard way. And so, yeah, it's, it's like all of those. And then look, it's also time. Like almost always what you find is if somebody does a breakthrough product, almost always what you find is there's a five or 10 year backstory for how they've actually been kind of working on it the whole time. They've been thinking about it or working on prototypes or working in the you know, all the related areas, kind of training themselves yep. up. And so, you know, the, 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 so there's some level of obsession where they've actually put that level of time into it. Because, of course, that's a prediction that they're going to have that level of focus, you know, for the next 20 years of building right. a company. Yep. yep. Okay. One last thing. Tony Fidel's, um, Tony Fidel's book on the iPad, on yeah, the iP cool. that yeah. his current book does a great job of his journey to the iPod, which you think of as like, oh, it just happened, but it was like literally from his first job. Because oh, Tony, correct me if I'm wrong, I haven't read the book. Tony was at General Magic, is that right? Yes. Yeah, so there was, this is ancient. There's actually a very good documentary on this. That there's a general general magic documentary that's apparently really good. So General Magic is a company. It's been lost in the midst of time. But General Magic General Magic was the iPhone in 1993, and they had they basically had the iPhone in 1993. It's actually shocking how like basically well for what they had then maps to what the iPhone was, and it was just like it was just whatever 15. What is that? 15 years too early. It was just flat out too early. You know, it was black and white, not color. It was, you know, super slow data, super slow chip. Well, there was like, no internet. You know, that, that slowed no it down. Internet. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and so they had this weird deal with AT&T and they had this proprietary network they were building. And so, so they were too early, but in all the specifics, they were too early, but they had the concept. Right, exactly. So Tony was actually at the company. I would presume where he was still quite young at that point, but he was actually at the company that kind of built the iPhone way in advance. You know, starting in like, I forget, General Magic started in like 1987 or something. It was an Apple spinoff and it went until like 1994, 1995. And so, yeah, so by, right, that's a great example. By the time Tony or any of the people involved in General Magic um, had actually went to work on the, on the iPod or the iPhone or the iPad or any of these other, you know, comparable products, like in a lot of cases, they've been working in the domain for 20 years. And, you know, they, they kind of, it's one of those things where they, they kind of, they got no credit for being involved in it before it worked, right? Because in fact, a lot of the times it looks like people were tilting at windmills. Like General Magic, it looked like they were tilting at windmills. It looked, you know, it didn't work. It didn't take. I bought one, but like I was one of like 500 people who bought. Like it, it didn't, it didn't work. Yeah. And so, you know, there was probably a long period where on Tony's resume, it was like, ooh, you know, why did you go there? And it actually turns out it was the training ground for. It was the idea maze that he that then paid off. Right? And then he went and he built Windows CE devices at Philips, you know, and and so. He just, you know, it, it's an incredible, if you like, it is literally the definition of idea maze to, mm -hmm. to read his book. It's a great, a great mm -hmm. fit for this conversation. Okay. One last thing, I guess, a lot of people watching this are very young, you know, in the teens, early twenties, you know, often not in the United States, often from, you know, India, like what advice would you have for, you know, a young person, maybe they're interested in technology, but maybe they're not, you know, what advice would you have for them? Yeah, I, let's see, you know, it's, it's hard to give general advice. I think the two big things, so one is like, look. No drinking of poop water. Do, do, not, do not live in the pod. Don't eat the bugs. <laughs> do, do not eat the bugs. <laughs> <laughs> do not drink the poop water. Even if Bill Gates is drinking poop water, you shouldn't. <laughs> so, so, well, look, so, so first of all, like, you can educate, you really can educate. I mean, it's more true now than ever before. You can really educate yourself. Like, you, you can't learn everything you need to know by yourself, but you can learn a lot. 
right? And so, you know, there there is a lot to read. There is a lot to learn. You know, YouTube, assuming they don't need platform for repeated poop water references, you know, look at YouTube has thousands of hours of just like incredible educational content on every domain you can possibly imagine. You know, y- you can learn just a tremendous amount. And so like, you know, t- time spent, you know, when, you, when you're young, time spent that's not, you know, reading, learning, you know, is, is kind of a waste of time. You know, if, if you really if you really want to do something, you know, amazing in the world, ultimately. And so, you know, there's 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 just like this incredible role for self self-education. And then, look, there's another part to it, which is I always say, you know, there's always this kind of thing of like, you know, what is it? A small fish, big pond or a big fish, small pond. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, do you want to be like a junior person at a big company? Do you want to see, be a senior person at a small company? Do you want to be work for a company that's already successful? Do you want to work at a startup? Like whatever, you know, there's all these kind of questions. By the way, where do you want to live? You know, do you want to, you know, maybe if, maybe if I live in a, in a city where there's not as much tech, maybe I'll stand out more. Whereas if, you know, maybe if I go to Silicon Valley or go to a place where there's lots of tech, maybe I'll kind of get lost in the noise. So people kind of have all these questions about kind of how they should think about the kind of career trajectory, life trajectory, where they live, where they work. I'm just, I'm a big fan of getting to the heat. And, and you know, when, and what I mean by that is like getting to the action, like getting, getting, getting as close as possible to the center of what's actually happening where all the excitement is. And this is not a foolproof recommendation. Like there are things that are exciting that don't pan out, right? There are people who went to General Magic in 1992 who thought it was the exciting thing and it turned out it, it didn't pan out. So this is not this is not foolproof advice, but getting to the thing, getting as close as possible to the heat, getting into the companies that, you know, where you look at it and you're like, wow, like those are the companies that are really defining the industry. Like, like I don't know if that thing's gonna work, but like, wow, what that company is doing, the R&D, the product, the vision, like that really seems like it's something, you know, the companies that are growing super fast, you know, basically get to the heat. And, and, and the reason to do that is, is one is just like, it, you know, it's, it's a way to kind of be in the highest substance environments, you know, where there's lots of just, you know, the, where the, the, the shit is flying and there's lots of interesting things happening. You can learn a lot. But also like that's the ideal way, I think, to inject yourself into a network that you're not currently a part of. Right. Like the people who go to a high growth company early, right, become an integral part of the network of that company in a way where it, it frankly, it doesn't, I think you guys both experience this, it doesn't matter where you came from. If you're at a certain company at a certain point when it's taking off, you know, you get really bonded in and you're now kind of a native part of that network. And so I, I would really focus, like if I were doing it all over again, I would really focus really hard on both of those. I love it. Okay. Okay. That was, this is amazing. This I guess, is awesome. I guess the very final thing, and this could be a one word answer is, are you optimistic about the future? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, hundred percent. Well, so in our business, you know, I can't give a one-word answer. Like in our business, I think we'll see if you agree with this. You can't not be optimistic because you you meet all these incredibly smart people with all these incredible yeah. ideas and all this incredible enthusiasm yeah. and energy. And as long as yeah, look as long look as long yeah. as as long as there are people in the human race who are like excited about doing new things, about building new things, and about devoting their life to you know building things that are make the world better. Like you know, how, yeah, I, I, how can you not be excited? Yeah, the best part of the job, you know, you know, this job in venture is that like some of the smartest people in the world come just find you. They come find you and they've been spending years and years working on this amazing thing and they tell you how it works and they explain some part of the world and something that you never learned of before. And they are so ready to go and they are so optimistic. And, you know, it's really hard to not get fired up when you run into that. Like when you meet a founder and you're kind of like there and you're kind of just absorbing the energy, you just you know, you get freaking fired up. So I think also, I think it's the same. And Mark, you, you're both an entrepreneur and now an investor. And I think you see this too. And Stephen, you know, I when I first, you know, worked with you or worked across, you were like running all the windows. And for me, it's like, I think being an operator too, it's very similar. I think it's like, there is no, nothing that is like as powerful as like actually solving problems and building things. And it's really hard to not be optimistic about the future because 
like unlike something like architecture where you know you have to like have the right tools the site like build things like you know the physical construct of it is required software you know i can just be in my bedroom have a laptop and i can just go build stuff and mm-hmm. it's just incredibly powerful to be able to like do that and for us it's just like it's really hard to not be optimistic about technology because we are basically living proof of that where you know we've just made this journey all the way here finding the heat in silicon valley yeah. and so even for like a builder i think it's just hard to not be optimistic when it comes to technology as such i think so i think so okay this was amazing you know i just want to say you know i'm going to get some shit for this you know, because you know everyone can say like i you know i work for mark but you know i think every founder's work mark like mark comes off as so intellectual and curmudgeonly and weird at times but he's kind of the most loyal and kind person you would ever meet I'll tell you a story. One thing that Mark does, which he won't talk about, is he has this habit of when people run into a crisis and people he's never met before, you know, he's often the first to go reach out. So, yeah, I may not agree with all of his tweets. I definitely think he doesn't. He shouldn't tweet most of them. But he is unique and amazing. And you know, Mark, thank you for so much for being a friend. And you know, also not for firing me at the end of this. We will see. We'll see how it goes. I mean, uh, I think you will have something worse, which is. We won't have the stream on YouTube. Yeah, much worse. So. Yeah, do not de-platform <laughs> us. The the you know the platform got. I think that's the key takeaway. But okay, wow, we we did it. It's a comeback show. This is amazing. Yeah, this is uh, yeah, this is amazing. Wow, I can't believe it. This feels awesome. So it is so good to be back. I want to thank a huge shout out to everyone who helped all the community, all the audience, kind of sent in questions. Huge shout out to Steven. and mark and send us more comments yeah jeff cyrus we have this whole crew that like helped us set up this thing we are not like we you know we didn't know how to get started with video and so it's just been like this big 6 7 week of like effort of like getting this to happen yeah. so thank you everyone who pitched in and helped us out here yeah. and folks listening on clubhouse thank you as well yeah and we're getting started so send us thoughts comments we'll be back you know probably around the same time until then see you Have a good night. I'm going to go eat this popcorn which some people don't believe is real, so I'm going to eat it, right? <laughs> But good night everybody. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye. Good night. Good night. Thanks Mark. Thanks Steven.